be opening your Bibles to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. Now, Jeff, you didn't do a thing wrong. They were laughing because Cindy said, bring the money to me. And so we said, amen, we'll do that. We want to make sure this thing's done properly. So we're going to take the money to the person in charge. It's so funny, came around the corner and there's that group of fellas standing back there and they were all worried and, you know, fall asleep one time and then people think you're never going to show up on time after that, you know. I told them I've been standing around the corner for 10 minutes listening to them. It was so fun. Paying back for that 175 on the front. So I guess there's two of us need to repent now. Psalm 113, the psalmist said, Praise you the Lord, praise, O ye servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 113 is part of a group of psalms known as the Halil, or as uh, the to praise psalms. They're a group of psalms, and that is the whole foundation of the psalm, to praise God. Now, this group of psalms were sung throughout the year, but particularly when the Passover feast came around, it took on even a more special and significant uh, reflection of the people looking back to God delivering the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And so it meant something even a little more special when they were observing the Passover when Christ or when uh, uh, God brought the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. I believe it is likely that Jesus and His disciples sang from this group of psalms as you read and they sang a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I, I believe it's very likely that they probably would have sang from this group of psalms as they observed His last Passover feast in this world. As we look at this Psalm 113, the first three verses stand as a call and a challenge to the people of God to be involved in His worship and in His praise. And we just sang some songs of worship and praise, specifically talking about praising God and worshiping God. Now, a song of worship or of praise can uh, carry with it a, a, a vast array of ideas surrounding God. We can talk about God's love and His mercy. We can talk about His being the creator of all things, His being the giver of life, His, His bring, being the one who brings us out of the death of sin and destruction. And we can specifically talk about His worthiness. His worthiness to be honored and to be worshipped and to be praised. Now this verse 1 is a plea to praise God. The follower is called upon to lift his voice and his heart in praise 
and honor and worship to God. Now that is a common characteristic of God's people from the beginning of the Bible even unto the end. Hebrews 13, 15 is just one example in the New Testament of God's followers being people of praise to God, honoring God and, and calling on His name and making those around us aware that yes, God is worthy of praise. Now the first part of verse 2 is an example of the praise that is offered to God. This is just one example. And the, the psalmist says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is blessed, isn't it? And when we call upon the name of the Lord, we can be blessed. And we learned that in Acts 22, verse 16. When Ananias came to a praying, fasting, penitent Saul of Tarsus, and he taught him the gospel, and he said, Now, Saul, Saul, why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So we understand what calling on the name of the Lord entails. It entails at the minimum of being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin, but we know it can't be that alone, right? It takes some, a, a process of getting to that point through hearing the gospel. And we know that that's what Ananias did for Saul because God sent him to teach him the gospel. Jesus didn't teach him the gospel on the way to uh, Damascus. He had another person go and teach Saul. We know that it entailed Saul hearing that message, believing that Jesus was who he said he was while he was on that road to Damascus. His penitence, his wanting to repent. And we see that in his actions. He fasted. That was a demonstration of penitence. And we can go all the way back to the book of Jonah and the uh, example of Nineveh fasting in repentance from the king all the way down to the lowest of the slaves. We know that that would include confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, making a public confession. Now we do that for, for a couple of different reasons, right? God understands our hearts. He understands we believe, but those around us need to understand what our beliefs are. Are. Christianity is not a secret society. We do not hide in the, in the dark and, and claim to follow someone that no one knows about. There are a lot of organizations in the world that do that. Christianity is not one of them, culminating in this immersion in water that we read about in Acts twenty two sixteen. So blessed be the name of the Lord, and those who call on the name of the Lord are blessed. And that's just one example of praise to God. Now the last part of verse 2 and verse 3 demonstrates the practice of praise to God. When should we praise God and how long is God worthy of praise? Well, from this time forth and forevermore. He said, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. In other words, God is always to be praised. He's always worthy of praise. God is to be praised and worshipped in eternity, right? John saw that as he was given the revelation and he saw into, as it were, the very throne room of God and he saw those surrounding the throne of God praising Him day in and day out, night and day, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand the intention of the psalmist here. He's not intending to us that everything we do in life is worship. Because everything we do in life is not worship. When we eat food, 
That's not worshiping God. Now, we'll thank God before we eat, right? But the very act of eating is not worshiping God. The very act of sleeping is not worshiping God when we're involved in manual labor. That's not a worship of God. Now, we want to involve every aspect in our lives as if we were worshipers of God. We were followers of God, but we can see throughout the Bible that there are times of worship, there are times when we do other things in this life. A good example would be Paul uh, commanding the uh, uh, Thessalonians to always be praying. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? He intends for people to pray 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 365 days a year? Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? What he's talking about is that we are to always have a prayerful mindset, that prayer is to be an active part of our lives. So worship is to be an active part of our lives. It's very clear to the reader when we look in Genesis 22, and we're reading the account of Abraham taking Isaac over to that mountain over yonder, And in his mind, he was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And and he took a a group of young men with him, some of his servants, and they had taken supplies and things of that nature. And finally, we get to verse 5, and and Abraham stops, and he and Isaac leave the group, and he tells those men that the lad and I are going to go yonder to worship. So everything we do is not worship. That whole trek from home to that point in their journey was not worship. Did they have a worshipful mindset? Well, sure, always in the mind of Abraham, God was worthy of worship. But every act we do is not uh, an act of worship. But that's supposed to be a big part of our lives because God is worthy of eternal worship. Now, in the remaining verses of the psalm, we are given the reasons why. God is worthy and why we're to be involved in His worship. Now, we want to focus on that this evening. This morning, we talked about what do we bring to worship? What do we bring to church? Well, we, had to, we talked about a few things that we were to bring, the, the right spirit, the right submission, and the right sacrifice. Well, I want us to continue with that line of thought with that, in that direction in this evening. I want us to talk about, and I want us to learn about why we worship God. And we talked about some aspects of that this morning. Now the sermon is titled this evening, We Praise God Because, or We Worship God Because. We Praise God Because. Well, first of all, we're going to notice for a moment. We Praise God Because of His Glory. And that's what the psalmist talked about. He said God is greater. He is exalted, right? God is exalted. And He's been exalted. He's greater than the glory, the psalmist said, of every earthly nation. Heaven is full of glory. But why is heaven full of glory? Because that's where God is. Heaven is full of glory because God is there. When the nations of the earth are gone, God will still exist in heaven and heaven will be full of glory because God is exalted and will exist in heaven. The faithful will 
along with God. So we'll always understand and be witness to the idea that, and to the fact that He is exalted. Again, in the Revelation, John was given a description and he was shown the things that happened in heaven, the things we could look forward to when we reside in heaven eternally. And the people, they, they surrounded the throne of God and they offered praise day and night. And they didn't have to worry about the trials and the persecutions that were happening and that were going to happen at that time in their lives. They could look beyond that and they could look to heaven They could look to the things that God had promised them. They were being blessed in heaven as they surrounded the throne of God because God is exalted. I think it is amazing to consider that God would pay any attention to any of us in this world. Isn't that what David asked, Psalm 8 verse 4? He said, What is man that thou art mindful of him in his speaking to God? And the Son of man that thou visitest him. Yet he does consider us, doesn't he? And he does know us intimately. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, uh, Jesus made the statement, God knows when any sparrow, every sparrow falls to the earth. He's very aware of all of his creation, but he is especially aware of his greatest creation. He said he knows and has numbered the very hairs of our heads. He knows us intimately, every single detail about us. He has considered us. He has visited us in the form of His Son. His eyes are upon us. That makes the praise of one so so exalted, even so more amazing, that we have the opportunity to even come before His presence, to bow before His throne, considering His his glory and His being exalted. And that's why we praise God, isn't it? Because of His exalted glory. But we also praise Him because of His exceptional glory. In fact, there is no one like Him. He is the only one of His kind. We might ask the question, as we read through the history of of man in the Bible, we, we look into the Old Testament, we might ask, where are all the pagan deities that those in Canaan worshipped when we're introduced to them as the children of God enter into that promised land? Where are all those pagan deities today? Where are all the idol gods of Egypt that Moses went down into Egypt and every one of the miracles and the plagues that he presented to uh, Pharaoh was a demonstration of God's power over all those deities that Egypt worshipped. Where are those deities? What about the the mythical deities that were worshipped in Rome and in Greece? And we get over to Acts chapter 17 and we see how Paul going in to uh, speak on Mars Hill and he sees all of these altars and he says, Boy, you are a religious bunch of people. I see that you're truly very religious. He said, you even have an altar to this unknown God. He says, I want to talk to you about that unknown God. But where are those gods? For the most part, they're gone to the the trash heap of forgetfulness, haven't they? They're just simply a part of history. People today realize that they're non-existent, that they truly are myths. 
You know, one day there are going to be those standing in heaven, though, and they're going to be begging to the God of Buddha. They're going to be begging to the God of Krishna. They're going to be begging to the God of Muhammad. And what kind of a response are they going to get? They're going to get the same response that those who worship the pagan gods of Canaan, those who worship the idol gods in Greece, those who worship the mythical gods of Rome, they're going to hear silence. We go back to Mount Carmel and we see Elijah standing on that mountain and they're, they're having this competition of whose God is God, right? And the, the priests of Baal, they, they set up an altar and they pray to their God and Elijah says, well, maybe, maybe he's sleeping. Speak a little louder. Maybe he's going on a journey. Perhaps he's out hunting. Speak a little louder. And they, they cried and they begged and they worked themselves up into a frenzy. And we talked about emotionalism this morning. Boy, they had it going on there, didn't they? They had ginned themselves up into such emotionalism they began to cut themselves and, and pray to a God that they knew did not exist because... They knew they had never witnessed a miracle from that idol God. Where are all those gods going to be? Well, they, along with all the other false deities of time, have simply the result of man's imagination. They're gods that have been created. The God of heaven, though, He created time. He created the heavens and the earth. He created Light, Genesis chapter 1, and then we continue to read those first two chapters and we see all the wonderful things that He created. And here's the thing. How many people have you heard talk about the God of the Bible being a myth and a fairy tale? Our God has been proven to exist. How is it that Job and Isaiah knew that the world was in the shape of a circle? You can't see it from this world. You look around in this world and it looks flat, doesn't it, for the most part? We all know from studying history, even in elementary school, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, that's when, for the most part, people discovered the earth was a circle. How did Job know that? Job, the oldest book of the Bible. How was it that Solomon was able to talk about the water cycle and how the clouds go from over the sea to over the mountain they rain and all the rivers flow into the sea. How did he know that? You know, we were just, again, up in Virginia, Minnesota, and I can't remember the name of the, the divide up there, but it was, it's the north-south divide in the middle of our continent. Everything on the southern side of that mountain flows to the south. Everything on the northern side flows to the north. And all the rivers flow into the sea. Our God is the God of heaven. He's proven Himself. We know that He exists. He had the power to call His Son back from the grave after the third day. And He's sitting today at the right hand of the Father, Acts chapter 1. We praise God because He is glory. God is glory. He is exalted and He is exceptional. But we also praise God because of His grace. That's our second point. Now we talked about grace for a little bit this morning. And we praise God for His reaching grace. God is in heaven. He created us. We're on the earth. And we can't learn enough. And we can't talk enough about the grace of God. We can't talk enough about the, the blood of Christ. 
the glory of heaven, the love of the Father. We can't talk enough about that. We can't put that into action in our lives enough. We praise God because He has reached down. And He told us how to praise Him. That's not specifically stated in this song. But everything we know about God, He told us. And He told us what to do. He told us how to honor Him. He told us of His existence. It is so beautiful to me when I read Genesis chapter 1 and at the house we just finished Revelation the other night and so we're going to start again in Genesis chapter 1 and in the beginning God. See, God doesn't make the case for Himself, does He? He just simply states His presence. We don't have to make a case for God. We don't have to prove God's existence. He's proven His own existence. It's amazing when we think about God's grace and His wanting to interact with us at all. That just is amazing to me. But what's more amazing is His willingness to join His creation in the physical form, to come and to live and to have died among a hateful people. But that's exactly what He did, right? He did it so He could save us from our sins. Paul said, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5, He said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But why? Why would he do that? What what is the... The advantage for God to do that, there's just one reason. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost because He loves us. Why do we do anything for our own children, our own family members? What's the benefit? There may not be a personal benefit as far as a financial benefit, right? But there is a great benefit to having children. There's a great benefit to having those that we love around us. It may cost us financially. It may cost us emotionally sometimes. But there is a benefit to having that love that someone loves you back just because. That's what God got. He gave that to us and we give that to Him. We praise God for His reaching grace. But we praise Him for His raising grace too, right? That's what the psalmist said. The reference to the the dust is a biblical meta, uh, metaphor of poverty, right? He brings us up out of the dust, the psalmist said. The creation of the world, we're poor and we're needy and we, needs God, we need God's lifting hand to lift us out of the sins of this world, to make us a new creature, to give us a life so that we can honor and praise Him. That's why Christ came and lived and died, to give us that hand up because God has a raising hand Grace. Without that, we'd never have an answer for the sins of this world. I think we're told time and time again about the greatness of God's grace, the precious and priceless gift of Jesus' death. Peter said this, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He said, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know what Peter's talking about? 
He's talking about just what we mentioned. You weren't raised, you weren't given life by physical things of silver and gold. He's talking about idols. That's what they made their idols out of silver and gold and stone and wood and, and any other thing they could carve or create into some kind of an image. He said, no, that's not what, what we have. We're not redeemed with that corruptible. What happens when this world comes to an end? Every idol ever created in this world will also be burned up and will be gone and the God of heaven will still exist. He said, no, you've been redeemed by the very Son of God, the Lamb, the blood of Christ. Paul told those in Ephesus, Ephesus 2 beginning with verse 4, he said, but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together or made us alive with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a priceless gift that Jesus gave to us. That's why we praise God. The psalmist talks about the dunghill, and that, that brings to mind the great trash dumps and heaps that would burn in biblical times outside the cities. And there was one, a great place where uh, right outside the city of Jerusalem in ancient times when the pagans lived there, they had this huge trash heap and it, it existed even unto the time of Jesus. They continued to use it for a place to dump their trash. And, and during the times of the ancient world, they would take dead animals and their refuge and their garbage and even criminals and they'd throw them on that dump heap and they'd burn them. The criminal didn't get a, didn't get a burial. He got the burial of an ass. He was simply carried out and thrown down and he was burned up. And those were places where when you made a trip to the dung hill, you'd, you'd in, encounter all of society's outcasts, the lepers, the diseased, the beggars. See, they would huddle around when that fire was burning trying to find a morsel of food so to continue that poor existence that they had in this world. They tried to warm themselves by the fires of the dung hill. I think it's very fitting that often Jesus spoke of hell and He called it Gehenna. We have an example of that in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. The valley of Hinnom, that was outside the walls of Jerusalem. That was in the ancient times. And that's where those people would, would carry their own children and they would build up fires and they would offer their children in sacrifice to the god Chemosh. That's where they put that dump heap, that dung hill. I think that's a fitting picture of hell. And it is from hell we need God's raising grace. We need to understand that. We need to praise and to honor God. His glory and His grace makes Him worthy of praise. But we praise God also because of His greatness. This is our last point. His greatness. You know the wonderful thing about God's greatness? One of them. It cancels the past. Aren't we thankful for that? I am so thankful that God's grace cancels the past. He can take the worst of humanity and He can turn them into something that is new and great. Think about some of the people in the past 
He took Gideon from the threshing floor, didn't he? Rose him up, or raised him up. He was a judge in Israel. Saul, he took Saul from following donkeys. He took David from leading sheep, the apostles from the fish, and he brought us out of sin. He cancels the past. I'm so thankful for that greatness. He takes us when he finds us, and he transforms us into something wonderful. When we read about Jesus' life in this world, there's never been an instance when when he met someone, when he interacted with someone, when he left them as he found them. Never did that happen. Now, they didn't always do the right things, but he still never left them. They were changed people. Even the young rich man, when he went away sorrowfully, he still was a changed person. He understood what he needed to do, whether he ever did it or not. God never lifts us halfway up either, does He? He'll lift us all the way up. He won't leave us to our own devices. He'll lift us up and then He wants us to maintain. Now it's up to me, right? I have to maintain my spiritual well-being. Paul told those in Corinth, he said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let that sink into our minds. Let that sink in. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. What happens if we go back to being the old creature? We're not in Christ anymore, right? We left Him. We've fallen from grace, Galatians 5 verse 4. We're no longer something new. We're, we're just like everybody else. You know, when we look into society today and we see the the movements of immorality, homosexuality, abortion, different things that, that are being uh, destroyed in our culture. You know, one of the things they talk about is, you know, well, we're just old-fashioned. We, we, want, we don't believe in anything that's new. Look, there's nothing new about that, right? We do believe in things that are new and different. How can we be different being Christ? You have 7 billion people in the world, 99999 percent of them are not new. They're not doing anything different. They're doing just exactly what the world's done for 6,000 years. God is worthy of praise because of His greatness. He cancels the past and He conquers our problems. We have the image of a childless woman. Now that is used to illustrate despair and distress. And we see examples of that in the Bible. We read about how God would bless certain of the women who were barren and they prayed and they begged. You know, the person that comes to mind for me is, is Hannah. But what about Sarah? Rachel, right? It demonstrated, or that is to demonstrate the problems of this life. God can take the barrenness of our lives and He can make us something that will bring forth fruit and glory to His name. He's able to do that. He conquers problems. John 15, 5. A wicked life is barren, isn't it? I tell you, let's, let's go find the drug addict. Let's go find the fornicator, the adulterer. Let's go find the drunk. Let's go find the thief and the liar. And let's ask them, how happy are you in this life? Look, you know what the world tells us? Oh, eat, drink, and be merry because, hey, we're just in this thing one time. 
They're not happy. They're not happy. God can make us happy. God can change us. The fact that He would lift us up out of our condition and then use us for His glory is a wonderful thing. And because of that, we ought to honor and praise and worship Him. His glory, His grace, and His greatness makes Him worthy of praise. We can only find happiness and fulfillment in this life in God. I think we would all agree with the psalmist. God is worthy of praise. Honor and glory. Blessed be the God of our Father and His Son Jesus Christ. But is He getting the praise He deserves? We talked about this morning, what do I bring to worship? What do I bring to church? We understand what we're supposed to bring. Now we've talked a little bit about God being worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise because. But is He getting that? Is He getting that in my life? Everything I do is not worship in this life, but everything I do ought to be done in view of God and that I am a follower of Him. And the world ought to be able to see that, right? We need to determine in our hearts we're going to praise God with our lips, with our lives, with our labors. We're going to give God exactly what He is due to have and what He deserves to have. He's worthy and He deserves us to praise His name. Let's lift up His name in prayer. Let's do it to other people too. Let's do it to other let's talk to other people about God's worthiness. We don't have to do it the way we see these religious nuts in the world do it and, and they, they act in such a way that you understand that something's wrong. Normal people don't behave in that way, right? But we need to be able to sit down and talk to our neighbors about Jesus. We need to be able to talk to people about God and his and that He is honorable and He's worthy of honor and praise. We need to be able to do that. We talked about his greatness, His grace, all of those things, His glory. We talked about how Paul became a Christian. We understand how that happens. But God is great in that He cancels the past. We, we mentioned that, right? He helps us to conquer our problems, and He can bring us back when we leave Him. We have to access the second law of pardon, 1 John 1, 9. We'll ask God to forgive us, we'll repent, we'll confess of those sins, and He is just and faithful to forgive us. If you have need to answer God's invitation at this time, as we consider that God is worthy of praise because, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.